Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Amy Lundy. Joel Drucker will be back next week. And the 2022 Australian Open draw is out, which means we are here to preview it. Of course, extenuating circumstances this year where we are not positive if one of our three is going to be in the draw or not. His name is there but there is, uh, there is still some uncertainty. So what we are going to do is we are going to start with Rafael Nadal because uh, we are recording this at uh, about midday on Thursday. So if anything happens, uh, the, the first part will still be uh, current no matter what uh, before Rafael Nadal's first round match. And then we'll get to Djokovic, uh, maybe a quick discussion about where we stand right now in just the, the visa situation as a whole, and then we'll get to the draw. All right, Amy, Rafa's draw, first reactions. That it's one of the toughest draws that I've seen for the big three in quite some time. And it's just a reflection of Rafa's lower ranking. Remember, he didn't play that much last year. His ranking slipped, so he doesn't get that first tier status. And because of the way the stars align in this one, he ends up with some players who are kind of on a hot streak and then some good stalwarts who are, you never want to see in that part of the draw. I mean, um, Kokonakis, I've had my eye on him because I don't know if people are familiar with his story, but just a lot of injuries that some of them were, you know, like typical overuse injuries, but then other ones were just bad luck. Like he, he tripped over a, a marketing, some sort of advertisement in uh, Monte Carlo and, and really messed up. I think it was his kneecap or his ankle or something like that. And that set him back. So he's had all these setbacks. And now, Gil, within the last year, it's finally coming together for this Australian. And he's had two good runs in these 250s that have happened in the run-up to the Australian Open. He's wild card for the main draw. And um, if he is able to get through his first round match, he'll meet Nadal. And that's not a hometown guy. I mean, he's from Adelaide, but but Australian guy is not really who you want to meet in the second round. Yeah, I think I think he's the guy to start with, with the discussion about <clears throat> Rafa's draw and with because you're right. He played a career high in matches in 2021, and that's such a good sign. He had he was healthy the entire year and he didn't hear about him because he was mostly at the challenger level because his ranking started from nothing. So he's worked into the top 200 now and he's really, really talented. He's a dude who was winning tour level matches as a teenager. And everyone would have thought at that time he was going to be a top 50 or a top 30 guy. And you're right. He's been awesome in these last two weeks. He's uh, he made the semifinal in Adelaide one. He beat, 
Francis Tiafo. He beat Michael Emer, who is another player who I think will have a good year. And then he lost to Monfils. And now this week he's in Adelaide two and he crushed Benoit pair. He beat John Isner. And now he plays Chilich in the semifinal. So yeah, a lot of promise. That's a good player. And then you move beyond that. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is the kind of draw that if Rafa was a top four seed, he wouldn't have to contend with because especially if you look at the quarterfinal, but before that, so what do you think there's Karatsev in the mix? There's Hachinov in the mix. Hachinov's a potential third round Karatsev or Herkoc is a potential fourth round. And then we'll get to, to the other side of the draw. Yeah. And just about Kakanakis, uh, he beat Federer. Don't forget. So mm-hmm. the guy has some talent. Um, I, 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 uh, Hatchinoff, um, the, the guy's forehand is a little, um, it's a little jacked, but if it's on, you know, it's, uh, in, in some ways, the way he moves, he kind of reminds me of a poor man's Djokovic solid player. Um, not somebody you want to see in round three, that's more of like a round four guy that you, that you would want to face him. I mean, Herkoch and Karatsev, those guys are solid gold. You wouldn't want to meet either one of them. Um, That's more like a quarterfinal or even semifinal deal. Um, And then in the quarters, you've got Zverev or Shapovalov and and Gil. I mean, we should disclaim that we are um, going in, in terms of who we think will be there. Um, of right. course, there's going to be upsets. Um, well, well, who do you have? First of all, do you have Herkoc or Karatsev? Herkoc. I do too. And then, and then I have Zverev. I, I think it would be yeah. hard to to pick against Zverev. And then there's yeah. also uh, there's also, I guess, besides Shapovalov in the top half, there's Opelka. Um, he could. Mm-hmm. He has the. Ta- he hasn't made a run at a major yet, but he has the mm-hmm. talent to do it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what sticks out to me? What? Great backhands. Yeah. And, and big serves. Yeah. And if, if you look at Nadal on a hard court, what is going to bother him? First of all, on the, on the quickest surfaces, his, his return is not rock as rock solid as a Djokovic or a Murray. There have been matches in his career where he has struggled against big servers at Wimbledon and, the U S open and uh, less. So the Australian open, he's been rock solid at that tournament in terms of how he's looked in the early first week uh, for the most part. Um, But it's the return and it's the cross court forehand. And as a righty, do you have a good enough backhand where it's going to get broken down? Or do you have a a backhand where you're going to be able to step in, take the ball on the rise, take advantage of that consistent hardcore bounce and do a lot of damage, not only protect the backhand, but apply pressure using the backhand. Hachinov, Karatsev, Herkoc, backhand guys with big serves. So I even think stylistically, forget how good a player these guys are, right? Because you could, if, if it were Diego Schwartzman, great player, but not a, a, a not a matchup that Nadal generally struggles with, just as an example. But these are matchups that I actually see as difficult for Rafa as well. 
And Gil, you know, it's not just the matchups because let's face it, he's Nadal. He can get through some of these matches, but it's the time on court. Rafa at his age needs to have a couple of easy matches. So, I mean, if I'm a fan of his, because we know Rafa doesn't really think this way, but if I'm a fan of his, I'm really hoping for some upsets to get some of these guys out of there so that he's not playing a five set match early on. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to deliver some numbers on Nadal's quarter, five mm -hmm. major semifinalists last year out of the eight seeds uh, or, or the wait. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the eight seeds, five of them were major semifinalists in 2021. Two of them were quarter finalists. And then the other one is Opelka. So mm. there's nobody like, I don't want to, mm. I don't really want to pick on people, but like, if you look at a seed and let me uh, just for the fun of it, go to Djokovic's quarter. Uh, Cam Nori has never been deep in a major. Christian Garin has never been deep in a major. Uh, uh, Sonigo has never been deep in a major. Alcaraz is about to, so I won't count him. I'm sure that's coming, but, but you have a bunch of guys who just going off past results and we can talk about, you know, if, if they're ready to do it or not, but generally in with 32 seeds, there are going to be some guys who have not seen the second weekend of a major and this quarter, almost everyone has, which is kind of amazing, yeah. right? That's a really great observation. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. And, you know, in order for Rafa to um, make a play to win number 21, which I happen to think is possible, especially given the firestorm around Djokovic, I, I do think it, it was possible. Now that I've seen the draw, it seems a little less possible. But um, for Rafa to do this, it just seems daunting. And then when you get into the quarterfinal potential matchups and beyond, I mean, even Medvedev is, um, you know, it just seems like if he's made it through all this and then he meets Medvedev in the final, it just seems a tough, tough task. But yeah. I do not bet against Nadal. Never. I do not bet against him. 
Yep. That's, that's a, that's been a, a good way to bet over the last <laughs> uh, 20 years. I I'll throw this out just a historical nugget. And then I actually want to respond to your, uh, your point about court time 2017, when Nadal came back from that injury late in 2016 year, he had a terrible draw and he was the, or, or, sorry, Federer, not Nadal. Uh, Federer, when he came back from the the 2017, where he missed the second half, uh, came back against Burdich, Nishikori. Uh, Burdich round three, Nishikori round four, Murray quarterfinal, Vavrinka semifinal, Djokovic final. There was a chance, based on his draw, that he could play all top 10 players from the round three on. So uh, if we're just going, I don't know, big three history, Maybe could be worse, but obviously 17 seeds also different from being a six seed. Nadal's ranking is still strong, but and, that? And yes, yes. And by the way, um, I, I wrote a piece on Nadal um, and the guy has um, finished second in this tournament a lot. And that's actually the mark of a great player. He's got yeah. a good record at the Australian Open. Um, and incidentally, when I said I don't bet against Nadal, I don't bet. (laughs) Um, It's it's just sort of a a, um, not literal. And and to be clear, by the way, as someone who understands uh, betting markets, because I've worked in the industry, Mm -hmm. betting on Nadal every match, regardless of how good he is, is not a good strategy because everybody knows he's good. So you would right. you're not going to win a lot of money, <laughs> but, um, I did, I peek at the odds too. Cause I just like to know, like, uh, and, and, uh, Rafa is in fourth, assuming that Novak's going to be in the tournament. Um, he's yeah. the fourth favorite to, um, to win. Um, on court time, I will say, regardless of the draw, I was not really going to be, and I think a little bit more so than you, I am not bullish on Nadal at this point. And a lot of that has to do with what I've heard from Carlos Moya. It just sounds like it's been a tough four months. And we know for a fact that Nadal is coming from essentially 0% two months without picking up a racket. You're kind of starting from zero at that point. And then after coming from 0%, So you can say August is a wash. You can say September is a wash. Apparently there was lingering pain. There were a lot of issues. There were Mm. a lot of practice sessions that were 45 minutes, an hour long, no movement. So I'm going to say maybe a month, maybe six weeks of really, really light training. Now you're into October. So I, I just wonder what has he had? Has he had about a month? here uh, on the training court. So I'm worried about the timeline of actually, if he's had enough time to build himself up, then you had the COVID after, uh, after Abu Dhabi, which took him off the court for a week. There's just been a lot of issues and setbacks, but then even more so, I do feel like there's a, a confidence thing recently that hasn't been great. And Nadal needs to I feel like he needs to build himself up a little bit more so he feels less insecure, especially on a hard court. Because, yeah, what? Gil, he did just win a tournament. Wait, but I mean, if but, this were anybody else, I agree. Like, 
but it was only a 250. I agree. But it, but it was it no, was but, on Rod Laver Arena and he had to do it against a servant volleyer, which was really unconventional. And I'm like, does is Rafa gonna be okay with this? He's got to dip the ball to this guy's feet like over and over and over. And this isn't necessarily his bread and butter ball. And yet he did it. I mean, he's just amazing. I agree. But I'm I'm going over a very large sample size here when I say Nadal hasn't been as clutch as he would usually be or he should be in the last year. Uh, going back to the Australian Open where he was the the Tsitsipas loss just in the third set, in the fourth and the fifth set, I don't think he could have done anything. But that was really weird what happened there. Like that was an awful third set tie break. And then you go back to last week where, yeah, he won the title, but he was broken serving for the match twice in back-to-back matches because he made some strange mistakes. I think he can get that out of his game. I think he will get that out of his game, but he just needs to play a couple of tournaments. Like to me, that is someone who uh, draws confidence out of yes, training, but also winning matches. And there just haven't been a lot, especially with the hard courts under his feet. So all in all, I think Nadal at, at 80 or 90%. And keep in mind that last 10% is the hardest to, to get to and build up. I think he can pull off some big wins. I think he can win matches next week and maybe the week after, but I also feel like we could see something like we saw last year, where once you get to the cream of the crop, which is going to come somewhat early, really in the fourth round. I mean, like Hercotch at his best, for example, I think is almost, you know, borderline an elite player for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the, the players who can, who are the best in the world. That's where I think we could see, the preparation and the confidence level kind of hurt Nadal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, oh. and to your point, this is not his surface. As we go through the tournament, let's keep an eye on that return position mm-hmm. and let's keep an eye on what he's doing with his serve um, and, and see how, how he's tweaking and progressing with that. Yep. That could change things. It looked really good. Maybe Nadal's serve is going to be, the thing against Cressy, he, he, his ACE rate was through the roof highest. I've seen it in a really long time. So maybe that's going to be something that can uh, be a, an unexpected boon for him. Um, and then before we move on to Novak, I just want to reiterate Rafa's one title, as you alluded to with how good he's been at the Australian open. So misleading because you're right. He's been so consistent at the Australian open going deep. So I think we covered all the bases there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Novak Djokovic is still awaiting a decision from immigration minister, Alex Hawk, which is going on uh, dragging out way longer than any of us would like. Do you have any theories for why? Yeah, I've got a theory and we're recording this just as people are waking up in Melbourne, Australia. So this could all be put asunder when um, when they wake up and if they make a decision. So I've been, you know, you know me, I like strategy. So I've been gaming out 
the strategy in my mind. Um, and I feel like this really is a game of strategy between Novak Djokovic and the Australian government. And here are the, the scenarios. There's really three scenarios. Number one, they deport him. They announced that for whatever reason, and they've got three big reasons that they could use, although I think two of them are on shaky ground, but uh, they got you know, one that, that they can really use, and they do have these God powers that they can use them um, and deport him and try to get him out of there. Scenario two, um, they let him play. And they say, you know what, he's here, he made it through, it's just, we've got other things to worry about, like Omicron, um, let's just let him do his thing. And then three is this um, letting him twist. And right now he is twisting in the wind in limbo. And by doing that, they don't boot him out of the country and therefore make him a martyr. They don't have to deal with this question of a three-year ban. And with the sword of, what is it, Gil, the sword of Damocles or something like that, that everybody's been calling it. He's got this sword hanging over his head. Um, he's probably not going to play his best. Now, I know he's Novak Djokovic, and he, when he's up against it, he can play. But he is a human being, and I think that it's going to be really tough for him to get through this tournament with the prospect that he could be deported at any time hanging over him. So if he loses, you know, sooner in the tournament than he normally would, then he leaves the country of his own accord. And they don't have to do anything. They don't have to address the ban. They don't have to go back to court. None of that. And basically, it's like a Cobra strategy because you're going to have the Australian fans on one side, pressure building up there. They're going to rip him. And then you've got the, uh, the prospect of being deported on the other side. And I think that's actually a strategy they may be considering. I kind of think we're going to get a decision from Hawk one way or the other just because I feel like it looks bad if, if a decision is not made and they've already taken enough damage. And I, I do think that there could be some deserving criticism if he just leaves it. Um, so we'll see. I, I do want to, the only thing I'll add about this is one thing that if we're being honest, besides all of the logic and, and reason, one thing that I think is concerning from Djokovic's end is all of the polls that I've seen in Australia and I've seen two or three about how the public feels. Um, most of the Australian public, which is extremely unrepresentative of the community of tennis fans or the, certainly the community of Djokovic fans, or, um, you know, it's, it's a very specific data set of civilian Australians, right? They are in favor of Djokovic's recancellation and when you're talking about politicians, of course, they want to do what is popular. Australia is a democracy where politicians run for office. So I do want to throw that out there that I, I would be concerned uh, from that perspective if I'm Novak, if I'm a Djokovic fan. And uh, if you want to add anything to that or we can go ahead. Well, and it, it's um, 
you know, just a lot of people have been asking my, me my opinion of the whole thing, um, particularly with regard to Novak. And I'll admit, I'm usually the one on this show that kind of takes the contrarian view because I and, and defends and supports Novak because I do think there's been some unfairness in the coverage um, and for whatever reason. On this one, I've really had to do some soul searching because I really disagree with his position on the vaccines. And, um, but I'm not for mandates. So there's where he and I agree. I'm, I'm not really for mandates in all scenarios. I think a private company or a private entity has the right to mandate, but even the World Health Organization just issued a statement yesterday saying that they don't think that um, countries should mandate vaccines the way for international travelers the way that Australia has. So World Health Organization and I are on the same team and Novak. But in terms of the revelation about testing positive on December 16th and then you know, finding out and then being around people, even though he, he was around the kids, but he says that he, he didn't know that he was positive at that time. Well, did you call the parents? Did you follow up? Did you tell them, look, I was COVID positive and I, I was around your kids. So watch for symptoms, you know, that kind of thing. Was there any mention of that? Um, and then he was around the journalist by his own admission. Um, and that's really tough for me. So how do I like square this? Well, first of all, Novak is a tennis player, but he's not a god. He's a human being. So I've, I've covered many different athletes from many different sports, and they're all human, just like you and me. They make mistakes. And I, I feel kind of the way I feel about my own child. If my own child did something that was pretty wrong and as parents we know that happens sometimes um, you still love your child but you do not condone the behavior and you yep. say that is wrong and you don't go out and you you don't try to defend the behavior or you don't try to twist it or turn it on somebody else or say well that kid also did something wrong no you you take responsibility and you say that behavior is wrong but I still love you and I still support you. So I would like to see Nole Fam have that more of that kind of a view, supportive, but not condoning of the behavior. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you just said from start to finish, from some of the coverage being unfair, but also some of the the kind of cult-like blind support being just as twisted and non you know, fact-based or, or reachy. So, you know, there's, there's definitely some behavior there where it's like Novak has taken responsibility for mistakes that he made. So that, that should be, uh, first of all, that should be appreciated. Uh, but also that should be a signal that mistakes were made when, you know, and no one's anti-Novak for pointing that, them out, unless you think Novak's anti-Novak, and that would be something because he's pointed out his own mistakes. Uh, hopefully, um, we get even more clarity when Novak is is able to answer questions, and there's no longer ongoing legal issues, and and this can be somewhat put in the rearview mirror. I mean, obviously, this is going to be something that's 
talked about and, you know, just a, another kind of an inflection point that happens in the, in the career of a player, but well said. And that was, that was good. Uh, let's get to the opponents. Let's get to the draw here. And Novak opens with Miamir Kecmanovic, fellow Serb, Tommy Paul, potentially in the, the second round, Paul will play a qualifier. Um, what do you think of, of Novak's quarter? Well, first of all, isn't it interesting, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, um, but isn't it interesting that he has a fellow Serb that the fates align that way? Because if you think about the way that the crowd is going to be, um, assuming that he plays, the Australian crowd is going to be angry. They're going to be rawr. So um, then there's this fairly large, as a minority group goes, Serbian uh, base in Australia, and there always has been, and they've obviously been very supportive of Novak, but now you got a fellow Serb, so they can cheer Novak, but it's not like they can boo the other guy. So I, I think that's very interesting, and I think it's going to um, it's going to favor the Australian crowd, and and it's going to be very difficult for Novak emotionally. He may not show it, but I know for a fact that um, he does want support and approval. So I think that first round match, if he plays it, is going to be difficult, but he'll probably get through it. Then again. Kachmanovich is not someone who uh, I don't think any uh, regular Australian tennis fans have have really uh, clenched onto emotionally. <laughs> so I, I guess it, it could be worse, right? It could be like Andy Murray versus Novak Djokovic, and then uh, or, I, yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously any of the Aussies that goes without saying. If you had if you had James Duckworth against Novak Djokovic, it would be uh, it would be a Davis Cup environment to say the least. Uh, but okay, that's interesting. I I don't think Kachmanovich. Tennis wise is a very yeah. threatening first round opponent. Now, maybe he can play more like he did two years ago. I want to say he had a better year last year. He was, he was really down and didn't make a lot of noise. Um, no, I, I think it's more um, he's got to go out there and, and experience the crowd yeah. and, right. and get through it. And he'll put on his Novak blinders and, and he should be fine, but then he'll go back and he'll reflect on what he just went through. And will that sort of dent him or affect him emotionally going forward? Yeah. We'll have a general conversation. We'll end with the general conversation about, about, I think Novak's just ability to play his best in general at this event. Uh, but I actually want to jump to the other side of the draw. I actually okay. think Novak's eighth is is pretty favorable, all in all. I mean, you have, um, if you look at the seeds, especially, you have Gail Monfils, who Novak, who's never beaten Novak. You have Lorenzo Sanigo, who is a, a serve and a forehand, a, a play style that Novak absolutely generally tears apart. You have Christian Garin, who's on a hard court, not a real 16 seed. Um, and then uh, are Carreño Busta and well, Car no, no, Carreño that's the other side. Okay. Right. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah. That's the other, that's the other eighth. So right. I think that, would be the, that would be the next eighth. Yeah. Right? The quarter, yeah. Okay. That would be the a potential quarterfinal, either 
Nori, Karina Busta, Alcaraz, or Berrettini. But do you kind of agree? I think Novak's eighth is pretty, you know, pretty favorable. And then I think there are some more interesting names in the uh, in the bottom half of Novak's quarter. Yeah, I mean, I'm really surprised that uh, Monfils won the way he did last week. Um, maybe marriage is treating him right, and he's finally just settled in his mind, but he looked sensational. He did. S- still, um, I-, I don't know, maybe that could be a really good match um, with uh, Novak being a little dinged up by the whole firestorm and Monfils hitting his stride. But it's still not, I, I don't think that this draw is still as difficult as Rafa's. Right. Uh, and I agree. Tommy Paul played amazing at the end of last year. He won Stockholm and looked awesome. And we'll see. I, I'm, I'm happy for Tommy if he gets that opportunity uh, to, to showcase himself center court at a major because I can't remember him getting the chance to do that. I know he played team at Roland Garros a couple years back, but I think Paul is a dangerous unseated player. Uh, but again, and, and you're right. The Monfils match could be good, but it's in the, on the other half, it could be Berrettini again, which would be four <laughs> yeah. straight. It and always is. It's, it's Carreño Busta or Berrettini. You can pretty much mark it down. <laughs> I'm going to be so, on his side. <laughs> I'm so sick of it. I'm so, so sick of it. I don't want to see Djokovic Berrettini. I'm, I'm like, I guess I'm upset for two parties. I'm upset for Berrettini who should get, I mean, at Wimbledon, it was the final. So there's no bad luck in the draw when right. it comes to what happened at Wimbledon. But other than that, it's like, I don't like it for Berrettini, but I don't like it for entertainment and interest either because it is the sa- it has been the same match three times in a row mm-hmm. to a T. It has been the same match. However, there are a lot of good players around Berrettini. Carlos Alcaraz, Cam Nori, Pablo Carreño Busta, and um, I think I'm missing one. Hold on. Am I missing one? Uh, the ones I had marked down as potentials were Carreño, Busta, Alcaraz, and Berrettini. Uh, I just want to yeah. say this about Alcaraz. Um, there were a couple players that were sort of, for me, ones to watch after last year. And and Alcaraz certainly burst through. And I was like watching his every move at the end of last year. And he was playing sensational. Um but then I didn't really hear from him much on social media. I mean, there was a little bit here and there. And then I, I woke up one morning recently and was like, where is Alcaraz? Where, where is he? He's not. In, and I was looking through all the draws of all these tournaments and he wasn't entered in any of them. And he only got to Australia a few days ago, Gil. And I'm not sure why he, he didn't enter any of these tournaments. So. Uh, I don't know if he's a little hurt or if he just needed to take some extra rest or didn't feel that he needed the um, the warm up down under, which seems strange because he's so young. So um, I'm a little bit hedgy on him. Interesting. Yeah. I, I okay. Interesting. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. I kind of part of me wants to part of me wants to imagine that him and and 
Juan Carlos Ferrero made like a moral stand against the length of the off season and was like, we need this long to improve and work mm-hmm. on our skills. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. That's an optimistic uh, way to. Uh, he did post a, a very um, nice photo of himself and Rublebs, you know, after they had obviously had a hitting session and he looked, you know, game and lively as ever. So uh, I, I think that um, he'll probably be fine. He's but- my pick. Just he's to, your pick. He's my mm. he's my pick to make the quarterfinal. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think Berrettini, I think he's an excellent returner. He's already beaten Matteo Berrettini. And I just think it's a good matchup for, for Alcaraz. I also think Berrettini's first round opponent, Brandon Nakashima, is an excellent returner who has beaten John Isner, who has beaten Milos Raonic. Um, I, I didn't check against Opelka, but I, I think he has a really good track record against the big server. So I do think Mateo could could run into some uh, some good competition. It's just so funny how we're always downplaying Berrettini. I mean, it doesn't matter what the tournament is. That's we, not, we, is that true? Yeah, because on, I mean, on grass, everyone was really high on him. Yeah, and he made the finals, so he he did. Um, I, I think people have just sort of pigeonholed him as being a certain style of player and that there's a ceiling on you know what he can accomplish and I think this past year he uh last year he um he exceeded expectations and the best thing about Matteo Berrettini is his demeanor he does not get ruffled (laughs) and uh you know like if you or I are playing or anybody else in the world and we hit a bad shot, we get mad. This guy laughs at himself sometimes. He finds it amusing. And, you know, if you think of everything that's on the line and the stakes are so high, he's just um, a very chilled out guy. And I think that actually with the serve and the forehand, that combination um, takes him far, a lot farther than people expect. You are so right. He is a player that I would, if I had a young one, I would say that's how to compete, right? Mm-hmm. That's how to compete. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he has the right balance of, of fire, of positivity, of not being, you know, overly crazy and emotional, but also using the emotion to, to his benefit. Yeah. He's, he's amazing mentally and he's clutch. Um, in terms of Novak, and just the extenuating circumstances, assuming he plays. People might call me hypocritical because I'm worried about Nadal and how much time he's had to train and get ready. Djokovic just lost four days of training. I can tell you, I'm not concerned about that. It's not hypocritical. Here's how I I feel about it. Novak comes from 100% and loses three, four days of training from a hundred percent ready to go. I don't think you lose it that fast. It's hard to gain it. That's why I'm concerned about how many days Nadal has lost in the last three, four months. And I'm not concerned about the week before the tournament, Djokovic losing a couple days, because when you come from a hundred percent, you don't lose it that fast, but you, it is incredibly slow and difficult to gain fitness and to, to develop uh, new skills. So that is, that is the distinction I draw. So I'll just start physically, not mentally. I don't think there's any reason for concern. Do you agree? 
Physically, I guess not. Um, it, Gil, let me ask you this. If there were no pandemic, in an ideal world, would Djokovic have come, I mean, I don't know, because I, I haven't looked at it, but maybe you know, would he have come to Australia and played one of the warm-up tournaments or not? He would have played ATP Cup, I think. However, oh, that's he, right. That's however, right. but he just played Davis Cup. So that would have been what Medvedev did, for example, three-week offseason. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that catches up to people. I agree. Eventually, maybe not now. And, and Rublev as well. Um, so eventually I want to do something on Dominic team and show how many matches the guy played there for a stretch of about three years and, you know, track some other athletes and, and say, look, this is a cautionary tale. And I think that maybe Medvedev and Rublev are maybe on the upper crest of that. So it's just something that they might want to watch. Um, but I don't think they're quite there yet. I mean, they're still very young and agile. So um, those are two that if I were picking, um, you know, those are two that I would really look for to do well in this tournament. Okay. I think Rublev has played more than, than Medvedev. Rublev's absolutely played a ton. Uh, no doubt about that. Okay. Mentally for Novak. That's where I think you have questions. I remember, uh, and we probably discussed this before, but uh, Pete Sampras and, and Novak had a, a little bit of a powwow at Indian Wells. I think it was in, I think it was in 2019. It might've been in 2020, uh, but I think it was 19. And Pete's advice to Novak was stay out of politics. It's, it's taking away your focus and what you need to do. And that's how Pete went about things. Never said anything controversial and just, you know, didn't say really anything about anything was kind of Pete's strategy. Uh, Novak hasn't really subscribed to that. And I, I think he respected the advice, but obviously didn't really uh, heed to it. Um, but it's, it's interesting because the one thing that would concern me more than anything is not the crowd, not the hostile crowd, but the, the mental energy how much of it has he burned this week? How, how much exhaustion could set in from all of the, I guess, the, the trauma of the last week? Um, that's where I feel like that happened at the U.S. Open, I think. I think he was fried mentally by the time he hit the final from having all of these intense, high-pressure, high nerve nervy matches that that he had th all throughout the US Open and i think that's the concern that that it's just going to be mentally exhausting yeah that those are really good points i agree with you across the board and then the other little factor and and you know i i'm a female so i tend to you know we tend to look at relationships a little bit differently than you guys do but to me, having the other players come down on you in that way, and there was a new video that I saw when I woke up this morning from Tsitsipas that was very critical of Novak. I mean, searingly critical of him. Um, when you know that your compadres on the tour, your fellow players are angry with you, 
um, and for something completely unrelated to tennis, um, how does that affect you? Um, for me, that would really bother me. I, I would find it almost impossible to compete, but I know, you know, different people have different mentalities and um, he's a champion. So uh, maybe he can block that out. What do you think? I, I agree with you. I, I, when, when people are mad at me, when it's happened in my life and it's been on a scale of obviously a personal bubble, not a global bubble, <laughs> but uh, it, it doesn't feel, it, it feels bad and it makes it difficult to function. So there's, there's no doubt about that. I think that's a good point about the, just the, the peer, um, the idea of peers having emotions, strong emotions, either negatively or positive towards him at this time. I think that's a good point. Well, uh, we can't wait for the tournament. As always, we will have coverage on three. Haven't haven't put together a real plan yet. Uh, I'll be upfront about that, but, but we will be present. We will be uh, obviously doing shows and uh, it'll be an exciting time as another Grand Slam in the era of the big three is upon us. Might get some some Novak news soon as well. Who knows? Or maybe even after this posts. I don't know. Let's see. But that'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.